0: Now, our moderator today is Dr. David Luke, an alumni of the LSE, actually. Um, He's coordinator of the African Trade Policy Center at the UN Economic Commission for Africa, with the rank of director at the commission. He's responsible for leading ECA's research, policy, uh, advisory services, and so on, training and capacity development focused on inclusive trade policies and in particular the boosting of intra-African trade and the continental free trade area initiatives. His portfolio also includes the World Trade Organization, the consequences and the possibilities of Brexit, as well as implications of trade for industrialization, gender relations and climate change. David was a panellist in our webinar last week, but now takes on the moderator role. I'm also very pleased to be able to announce that he will be joining the Firos Laodice Centre for Africa as a professor in practice next year. So we're very pleased to have him again this week. Thank you, David, for joining us for a second time in a row. Um, And I now hand you over, um, hand the audience over to you, David, to introduce our excellent panellists. Um, Thank you
1: very much, uh, Tim, for those uh, kind remarks. I'm truly delighted to moderate uh, uh, this uh, webinar. And uh, hello, everyone, uh, wherever you are uh, joining uh, this event. I'll begin uh, with some uh, remarks to put the subject in perspective, and uh, after which I'll introduce a distinguished panel of speakers who will be discussing the subject, and and then we'll get uh, started. So the shock of uh, COVID-19 is obviously a a matter of great economic uh, concern. The UN Economic Commission for Africa uh, has put uh, economic growth uh, on the continent this year, which initially was was, uh, supposed to be at a level of uh, 3.2%. It is uh, now expected to be between 0 and 1%, depending on the strength of the recovery in key sectors as well as the trajectory taken by the disease. This is a loss in GDP growth of over $43 billion. The UN ECA also estimates that close to 8 million people will be pushed uh, below poverty uh, of uh, the poverty line of Uh, uh, $1.90 per day due to COVID-19. Vulnerable households affected by COVID-19 also face an increased probability of moving into transient poverty by 17.1%, and vulnerable households uh, face a 4.2% increased probability of staying in poverty for a decade or longer, and a fall in the probability of moving out of poverty by, five, by 5.9%. In other words, we can, see, we can expect to see a significant reversal in the gains that have been made in reducing poverty. While developing countries have injected trillions of dollars into healthcare, social safety nets, income support, and economic stimulus responses, Africa lacks the fiscal space to respond similarly. In particular, Africa is hamstrung by four challenges. First, high to debt GDP levels. The average is currently estimated to be 64% of GDP. Second, high fiscal deficits at an average of 3% of GDP, third, high costs of borrowing, and fourth, currency depreciation against major currencies. African governments are also under pressure to keep up payments on debt service and avoid stigmatization in financial markets associated with debt relief. Indeed, stigmatization is of such concern that African finance ministers have only called for a temporary standstill on debt servicing and not for debt forgiveness. Standstill is what in fact underpins the G20 debt service suspension initiative. On average, African governments spend more on debt servicing than on healthcare. So urgent economic and financial measures are needed to help soften the blow of COVID-19. And as the G20 Ministers, uh, Finance Ministers meet again next week, uh, one hopes that they will be able to go beyond uh, what they've done so far. And clearly, uh, a coordinated approach to debt resolution is required given Africa's diverse creditor uh, a base of private and official creditors and other arrangements with China. So these unrelated issues will be discussed by our panelists, whom I will now introduce. Uh, Firstly, we have uh, Emma Amara-Ekorushe, who is a research associate at the Center for the Study of the Economies of Africa at Oxford. She runs a column, Your Nigerian Economist, on STEERS Business, uh, which is Africa's leading business publication. She holds a Master's in Economic Policy from University College London, and a bachelor's degree in economics from the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology uh, in Ghana. Her research interests are development economics, macroeconomics, and fiscal policy. Uh, Consequently, her research experience cuts across key issues in development, including government debt and public financial management, South-South cooperation, and the impact of Chinese investment in Africa. You can find her work at Brookings, the UN Office on South-South Cooperation, Southern Voice, African Portal, and on Think Tanks. Then next, we have Professor Anna Gerpen, who is uh, Agnes N. Williams, research professor at Georgetown uh, Law School, Georgetown University, and a non-resident senior fellow at the Peter G. Peterson Institute for International Economics. She has published research on government debt contracts and regulation of financial institutions and markets. She has co-authored a law textbook on international finance and has contributed to international initiatives on financial reform and government debt. She co-directs the Sovereign Debt Forum, a collaboration between Georgetown Law School's Institute of International Economic Law and academic institutions in the United States and Europe. Dedicated, dedicated to cutting edge research and capacity building in sovereign debt management. And next we have Eric Lecomte, uh, who is an American commentator on politics, finance, and religion. He serves on a working group with the UN Conference on Trade and Development. He is currently Executive Director of Jubilee USA Network. And last, but certainly not least, we have Dr. Shelley Zayu who is a senior visiting fellow in the Institute of Global Affairs at LSE and an Asia fellow with the Ash Center of Harvard Kennedy School. She has a PhD in political economy from China's Peking University and a master's in government from Harvard University. She has published three books in Chinese, including On China by Ambassadors and The Rise of the RMB and and The Fall of the Yen. She has also served as a mentor for Cherry Blair's Foundation for International Women. Each panelist will have 10 minutes to make their presentation, after which we'll have an interactive discussion. So please use the Q&A function and chat box, as well as Facebook, to send your questions and address them to a specific panelist, if possible. Now, let's get started. Our first speaker is Emma Ekarushe. Emma, you have the floor.
2: Thank you so much, David, for that warm introduction. Today, I'll be taking us through an important aspect of why we're here. And my presentation is titled Africa's Debt Amid the COVID 19 Pandemic and the Ramifications for the International Community. So, just to give us a brief background on the debt situation before the pandemic set in, Um, Between 2014 and 2019, debts across Africa has quickly increased um, by about 50%. So um, government debts as a share of GDP increased from 31% to 50%. Now, what was the reason for this rising debt? After the global financial crisis in 2008, where advanced countries um, saw unprecedented low interest rates, Africa's debts became very attractive to creditors, given the difference in yield. Also, this was happening at a time where African governments, you know, they were interested in in developing huge infrastructure projects. And as such, they needed long-term finance. And these are projects that will typically not be funded by the more traditional lenders. Now, um, who were the biggest debtors? Um, for low income countries, we see Tanzania, we see Mozambique, we see Uganda, and for low middle income countries, we see Angola, we see Egypt, we see Ghana, we see Kenya. But what I really want us to take away from this slide is the creditor composition of Africa's debts. So we see how um, private creditors which is the ash series and to an extent by natural creditors you know are africa's biggest lenders and this is a point that you know will occur as we as we go further now aside the existing fiscal concerns um the pandemic has also brought with it you know what i've termed twin fiscal shocks so one is from the slowdown in the domestic economies um africa like other continents you know um they've they've imposed lockdown measures, partial or full lockdown measures. And this has affected, you know, sectors, whether it's, you know, um, tourism or aviation or, you know, restrictions to trade. And so what we're seeing is that governments across the continent, you know, they're realizing uh, lower tax revenues and also the commodity price shock that, you know, was induced by the pandemic, um, whether it's um, oil in Nigeria, Nigeria or, you know, copper in Zambia, there's really no demand for these commodities. And so um, commodity exporters, they've also had a fall in their, in their export earnings. And it is all this that has triggered the global call for creditors to provide Africa with debt relief. So far, we've had the, the debt service moratorium package by the, by the G20 um, which provides um, developing countries, including uh, about 40 African countries, um, with debt service moratorium packages up until the end of the year. We also have um, a similar package by the IMF, which provides um, vulnerable countries, including 19 African countries um, with um, debt service moratorium up until October. The IMF also provides finance, emergency financial assistance, which are basically concessional loans to its member countries. Now, the, you know, the million-dollar question is, is this adequate? Is this sufficient for the continent? And I would say it depends on who you're asking, and it depends on how long the pandemic will last. So what I've done here is to categorize you know, countries um, into three, three groups. We have winners, we have near winners, and then we have those who have been left behind. So, for the winners, these are countries who are eligible to both debt service moratorium packages and also they've been able to access um, the IMF's um, finance program. And um, there are a few countries in this group we have Burkina Faso, we have Mali, we have Mozambique, but most of these countries are LICs. Um, the next group, we have the near winners. So for this group, um, they are either not eligible for the debt service meritorium packages, or even though they're eligible, or even though they're eligible, they failed to access these packages. However, they've been able to, you know, get finance from the IMF. And you know, a question that would come up is why would a country who is eligible um, for these packages not access it? You know, why would they continue to service their debts as they were, you know, doing? In the pre-pandemic era, and the answer is a number of countries, including mine, Nigeria. Um, and their governments are a bit wary of coming out to say,
3: "Look, uh,
2: rather you know, not boost healthcare spending, for instance, because they're they're a bit wary of you know getting their credit ratings downgraded." Or you know, worst-case scenario, being locked out of the debt markets. And um, I know. Um, so what's happening in these countries is they're still servicing their debts as, as as they were. I know for Nigeria, we were we were used before the pandemic. We were um, servicing. We were using about 60% of our revenue for debt servicing. And at at you know, the latest figures show that we're now using about 99% of our revenue. For debt servicing, which leaves little fiscal room for, you know, any other thing, um, we have Ghana, we have Kenya also in, in this category, and then we have the third category, those who have been left behind. So these countries, you know, they've not been, um, they are not eligible for the debt service moratorium packages, um, and also they haven't accessed the IMF's finance programs. And um, we have South Africa, a lot of countries in Southern Africa actually in this category, we have Zimbabwe, um, we have also a few countries in North, North Africa, Algeria and Morocco. Now, regardless of the you know category, um, a, a huge concern is the fact that private creditors are not participating in this debt relief um, programs. And this is because of the creditor composition of Africa's debts. So here I show how um, over... of Africa's debt is owed to private lenders. And, you know, although low-middle-income countries are more affected by this than low-income countries, but at the same time, even for for winners who who have accessed the the debt service moratorium packages and also, you know, have accessed loans at concessional rates, it's also, you know, it also affects them because what could be happening is that they could be using these... Funds to set the entire purpose of the of the, of the programs. Now, what does this mean? So over uh, we see that debt will, debt will increase significantly, you know, and um, the last the latest IMF reports they and you know the the future of the continents in the creditor landscape, you know, towards multilateral creditors. But an important point to note is that Governments are are beginning to draw increasingly on their local debt markets, um, as you know, it it limits them from um, exchange rate volatilities, which could potentially crowd out the private sector. Also, even though these efforts are uh, a step in the right direction. Welcome development. The continent still does not have that. Um, countries are now are now increasingly mobilizing resources domestically. So I know that for Nigeria, we have a tax on online transactions coming up in 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 the next couple of months. There are also talks about taxing digital businesses, and you know while while this would be great in saner climes it's happening in a context where where other countries are providing tax relief to the front of the pandemic. Now, just to conclude, like I said, while these efforts are step in the right direction, and you know, it's important for to, to creditors who happens to join done. So, that are already being considered in the policy space, but this is just to re echo these recommendations and to show you the need need for more to be done. So, first is that lenders should be prepared to extend the debt service material period even beyond beyond 2020, depending on on when the pandemic would would end. Also, we encourage um, um, the participation of bilateral and private creditors. I know that China is currently in talks to provide um, countries, I think about seventy or parts of seventy countries, with debt service relief, which is which is you know a, a welcome development. Also, private c- creditors, you know, are encouraged to join the movement so that so that African governments do not prioritize debt servicing at this time, and you know, no no country goes into full blown debt default. Also, um, it's, it's, it would be nice to encourage credit rating agencies to, free, to freeze the credit ratings of governments at this time, just so that um, governments are not concerned about being downgraded and being locked out of the debt market and they can actually utilize these packages that are being provided. And um, finally, uh, uh, the finance being provided should be grant based rather than credits so that we don't, we don't see a, a debt ballooning in the near future. Over to you, David.
1: Thank you very much, Emma, for that. Uh, you've uh, uh, touched on uh, how the pandemic has uh, impacted African uh, countries. You've uh, uh, given us a breakdown of the, uh, of, of the debt, uh, which countries uh, are affected. Um, You've also touched on uh, what's been done so far, and uh, clearly your your point is that what's uh, been done so far is not adequate. So without further ado, I'll go straight to Professor Anna Galpin, um, who is our next speaker. Anna, you have the floor.
4: Well, thank you so very much for this kind introduction, and it is an honor to be here and an uh, honor uh, to follow Emma because uh, I'm not an economist. Uh, although uh, probably one of my best years was spent at the LSE studying anthropology. Um, But I've collected the dividends from the word economics in the name LSE probably for much of my life. Um, So I'm a lawyer, and I will focus on institutions and uh, structures and processes that uh, we are uh, facing here. the global pandemic uh, magnifies the financing needs and debt vulnerabilities, among other vulnerabilities, in Africa and, of course, around the world. It exacerbates inequality along every dimension, uh, among countries, within countries, uh, gender, racial, you name it. Um, so in this context, and I think Emma started uh, with a really important point, uh, the spotlight on debt um, is important but we shouldn't be um uh we shouldn't focus on it to the exclusion of everything else um because debt is one way of meeting the needs that these countries are facing um, and also of course it is an one source of vulnerability um but it is uh, neither Uh, the only way of meeting the needs, uh, nor is it the only vulnerability. So I'm going to try to elaborate on that um, for a bit. Um, It is is critical that we have a very clear view um, in each case, in the case of each country, um, what role debt plays in meeting the needs uh, and uh, adding to or um, reducing vulnerabilities. Debt relief is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to ensure that urgent humanitarian and development needs uh, take priority. Um, So there are some countries, uh, there's, I think that Emma actually, again, also pointed out very important uh, uh, variations among countries. In some countries, um, there is a lot of debt, Uh, and a lot of debt service that would otherwise be uh, allocated to, that could be allocated to um, public health priorities and basic human needs. And it's certainly critical that this uh, reallocation happen. And this is what suspension and uh, relief is about. Um, But then there are other countries that either don't have a huge lot of debt service coming up in the near term or, for other reasons, aren't eligible for some of the current initiatives that are on the table. And that does not mean that they don't have financing needs, right? So there's got to be a way to independently meet the financing needs of countries that don't happen to have a giant debt payment coming up before the end of 2020 or 2021 or whatever the time horizon is. We can't possibly let um, uh, lose sight of that. And I think the managing director of the IMF actually even mentioned this yesterday and it came up in development committee conversations earlier in the spring. There are countries that are not eligible for any of the debt initiatives now simply because they're in the wrong income group. Um, and they have profound debt vulnerabilities. They were in debt distress before COVID hit, and they're going to need debt uh, relief in one way or another, um, what, again, uh, quite independently of the, or at least um, not uh, as directly related uh, as a function of the COVID shock. Um, it is uh, important to note that markets have been providing liquidity to countries now. Um, and again, the previous speaker mentioned some of the reasons uh, why that might be happening. And all equal, look, liquidity is a good thing when you need liquidity. But as a lawyer, my first question is on what terms, right? So a lot of the shifts that we've seen are not just shifts uh, from one group of creditors to another. But some of these shifts come with uh, terms that uh, make the debt stock more brittle, that make countries more susceptible um, to crises down the line, so short maturities, collateralized debt, interest rate structures that um, exacerbate uh, the effects of uh, economic shocks. Now is the time to really watch the terms of the borrowing and not just, uh, you know, take liquidity when it's coming at you, I think. So another point I wanted to make is that um, this crisis comes at a troublesome moment for the debt restructuring regime, um, such as it is, um, but it also presents an opportunity. Um, New creditors uh, are at the table, new debtors are at the table, countries that didn't have market access do. Also, many countries uh, borrow through uh, subsovereign entities, uh, state-owned enterprises. Um, So there are new borrowers and new debtors um, that are on the scene, but many of them are not particularly invested and with good reason in the prevailing debt restructuring and uh, crisis management institutions, be it the Paris Club, um, you know, the long forgotten London Club from the 1980s, you name it, right? So now is an opportunity, and I think there's an urgent need to really give some thought to what the debt restructuring architecture is going to look like going forward and how to ensure that all of the new actors debtors and creditors um are invested in this architecture um that they do not feel like this is something that was established without their participation you know 30 50 uh years ago and uh therefore they would just as soon uh resolve any difficulties on their own. In a systemic crisis, these bilateral um, initiatives, while welcome um, relative to nothing, I suppose, um, create uh, really troublesome collective action problems and can contribute to rather than alleviate uh, vulnerabilities. Um, Another thing I wanted to flag, uh, again, as a non-economist, is that there is a wide range of claims on uh, the countries that we're focusing on now, um, and that unlike in uh, past crises, um, the nature of the claim does not necessarily tell you much about the creditor who is holding it, right? So a bond could be held by a bank, um, a regulated pension fund, Uh, an unregulated offshore hedge fund, uh, a sovereign wealth fund, uh, a government reserve manager, you name it. And consider the fact that the net present value of that bond would be different depending on who holds it, because everybody is subject to different accounting conventions, right, and different legal regulatory regimes, so that um, to the extent that these debts uh, become distressed Um, How to restructure them, how to renegotiate them becomes a really tricky proposition, again, when the, um, when the composition, when the, when creditor composition changes uh, all the time, when debt holdings are very dynamic, and when the creditors face very different incentives, even when they might hold the same instrument, right, so this is very much not The 1980s. Um, The old regime, again, centered on the Paris Club, the IMF, the Bretton Woods institutions, um, and really prioritizing kind of case by case, ad hoc, contract based approaches, um, may not work in countries where the Paris Club does not uh, represent. Uh, even a plurality of claims uh, or bilateral claims when the uh, IMF's role is uh, not, uh, uh, when the IMF is not in the lead and when borrowers have many private and public alternatives um, from which they might get short-term financing in particular. Um, Coordination is, ephemeral at best today um we don't see a substitute for the old institutions by the way which were not all that great but there was some coordination when it was a transatlantic club uh, very problematic coordination in many cases i think we urgently need a uh more representative more broad-based coordination uh regime um We need to be creative, uh, particularly when it comes to deploying public resources. So bilateral, multilateral institutions, regional institutions um, need to focus on how to meet the financing need, uh, whether with debt restructuring or with uh, delivering new money without undermining uh, sustainability. Creative use of uh, catalytic uh, structures, including guarantees, Um, would be great. But I think we need to think very, very hard about um, where the public subsidy is going. Um, So, uh, you know, I keep thinking this is really 1982, not 1989. And some of the ideas that I've seen floating around about, um, you know, public subsidies for a um, six-month standstill uh, with capitalizing interest at market rates strike me as puzzling, shall we say. Um, particularly when it comes to uh, building vulnerabilities uh, for uh, countries already in precarious states. Um, Private creditors have a really important role to play uh, in uh, the management of this crisis um, and should really get proactive um, about... uh, their role here. And again, coordination is the buzzword I keep coming back to. Um, The focus seems to have been on risk management of a particular sort, making sure that nobody's committed to anything whatsoever, right? Um, I'm not sure avoiding commitment uh, uh, inspires a whole lot of confidence or amounts to a strategy. I think this now is the time to be creative, uh, both uh, with instrument design uh, and uh, institutional participation. Um, We should keep an eye on uh, cases of debt restructuring happening outside Africa now. Um, Argentina and Ecuador in particular are in the middle of um, fairly complicated uh, operations that are testing the prevailing contractual regime. Uh, And I have, uh, I don't have a ton of confidence about how the regime will fare in these particular uh, cases. Uh, And uh, I think that could have implications for uh, vulnerability, for handling vulnerabilities and crises to come going forward. Um, A contract-based system um, works until it doesn't. And if we see a breakdown in uh, middle income countries in Latin America now, this could have implications for a very broad range of countries. Um, the regulatory environment, and in- including the role of credit rating agencies, bears emphasis. And this is my last point. I want to um, reiterate something I've been saying a fair amount. We need to stop fetishizing default. Right. Technical default. You know, there have been some um, fairly uh, puzzling conversations about whether the announcement of a debt suspension somehow amounts to default. This is why smart people get paid the big bucks. Um, this should not. Default can be um, a um, can accidentally cause uh, a crisis, can accidentally cause a shock. It is our job to focus on substance rather than technicalities and formalities and making sure that formalities don't get in the way of substance. Now, default can either, um, default can be the cause of a crisis or default can be a source of financing, right? There are some cases where avoiding default is just not worth the cost of um, not meeting basic human needs. And I think that these kinds of discussions should be happening uh, in a very straightforward and fact-based way. The role of the credit rating agencies strikes me as a really unfortunate uh, distraction in this enterprise. Um, Credit rating agencies are only important because we let, um, we allow certain consequences to follow from credit rating actions right so there was a big discussion about this in 2008 Um, there is a discussion about it now it's not what they say it is how we use them if there were no credit rating agencies um, and if there were no ratings downgrades creditors might or might not charge more Um, under certain circumstances. So I think that uh, we need to rethink the role of credit rating agencies more than we need to uh, rethink what it is that they do. Um, And there are similar um, points to be made about uh, regulatory treatment. Um, With that, I think I want to close and just highlight the fact that the objective has got to be funding essential needs in response to a public health shock. How we get there is a second-order question, an important one, but let's not lose sight uh, of the objective and the priorities. Thank you.
1: thank you very much uh, anna for giving us uh, in effect a lawyer's uh, perspective on, on these issues uh, covering a lot of ground uh, that yes indeed uh, debt relief is warranted uh, in uh, in a crisis such as this what attention needs to be paid to uh, what that relief the public subsidies from it uh, are used for um, interesting points about uh, the new opportunities just giving the changing landscape and the composition of uh, of, of, of creditors, um, and uh, again, um, uh, how much uh, that landscape has changed in, in recent years, and uh, indeed uh, opportunities, also so creative uh, thinking and action that could uh, come out of this. Uh, I think also an um, important point for us to look beyond Africa, also look at what is happening in Latin America and what we can learn from this. Again, underscoring your point about uh, how much the uh, landscape uh, has changed and similar points to those of uh, anna uh, on um, uh, the role of credit uh, agencies uh, so thank you very much uh, for that uh, anna uh, so next i'll go straight to uh, eric um, eric you have the floor
3: thank you so much david uh, it's a real pleasure to be with all of you today uh, and in the united states uh, we have a religious community the quakers uh, who, when they have prayer services, uh, and the people before them already say what they were going to say, they simply say, friend speaks by mind. Uh, and the reality is, uh, between the introduction from David, uh, Emma's commentary, and what Anna just offered, I can simply say, friend speaks by mind. So let me just add and enhance uh, a bit of what they offered as we continue this conversation today. Um, David began with a a very strong introduction uh, of the reality that we're dealing with a very severe global crisis, a crisis that's impacting the vulnerable, unlike any other crisis we've seen in our lifetimes. Uh, Emma brought that home in terms of what she talked about specifically in how this crisis is impacting Africa, how the debt standstill can help or hinder Africa in the next steps, and what Anna did so perfectly uh, before uh, I offer some remarks uh, was noted some of the challenges we're facing. uh, And I think even more specifically, started to light the path to how we need to improve debt restructuring, how we need to improve financing, how we need to look at uh, how we ensure that uh development aid no matter what it is 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 available for these countries so i'd like to share my brief remarks uh, really along those lines uh I, i think to highlight and take it a step forward from what david offered in his introduction according to the united nations right now we are looking uh in the next few weeks for 265 million more people to enter famine to enter extreme hunger Uh, mostly within Africa. Uh, It's a a challenge like no other that we've faced before. Uh, It's an incredible financing need that uh, Africa right now uh, is looking at. Uh, It's an incredible challenge. Uh, And and to move forward, you know, in terms of Emma's comments and where we're at, uh, of the 73 countries that are able to take advantage of this debt standstill, Forty countries in Africa so far have said that they're willing uh, but the majority of those countries have little or no critical care units. The lucky ones have 50 critical care units. So when we're talking about the coronavirus impacting Africa and starting to have a more significant impact uh, on the developing world in Africa, we know that they are not prepared to be able to deal uh, with this growing health crisis that's taking place. Uh, And that really brings us to, I think, the very powerful comments from Anna uh, in terms of where we're at with the debt standstill, where we are at with the financing needs right now. And the reality is, as we've made much progress, as world leaders have come to the plate and stepped up, we're not doing enough. Uh, And that's really the conversation that we have to be focused on today. Uh, In terms of short-term, middle-term, long-term goals, Uh, There are many things that that need to happen. Ultimately, um, we do need a a new type of financing process, a new type of debt restructuring process in order to be able to deal with the needs uh, that countries have right now. Uh, Beyond the reality uh, that uh, we're $12 trillion away from meeting the Sustainable Development Goals in terms of alleviating poverty, the International Monetary Fund just noted that we're looking at a $12 trillion loss to our economy. The head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gorgiva uh, has said that the Africa crisis is like no other in the past few days. Uh, and Kristalina even went further to say uh, that this particular crisis needs a much more significant financing and aid than we're prepared to deliver at this point. So let's take a step back, let's look at the debt standstill that the G20 and the IMF has moved forward, part of which some of the previous speakers has alluded to. So incredibly exciting and important. 19 countries in Africa are going to see debt cancellation for six months through the Catastrophe Containment Trust Relief Fund of the IMF. Great step forward. For countries that count their budgets in the tens of millions who have no critical care units, This is really helpful. Is it enough? It's not enough. For the reality that we're dealing with, that the majority of Ida countries in Africa, not even including middle-income countries, but just talking about the majority of Ida countries in Africa uh, being able to apply for this debt standstill, which could be between 12 and $20 billion of relief. Again, really significant. Is it enough? it's not enough for the financing needs. So we need to also look at unilaterally what the finance ministers of Africa have called for. A consensus among every finance minister in Africa is that just this year, for Africa to get through just this year of the crisis, just in debt relief, they need 44 to $45 billion of debt relief of a debt standstill. And so far what the G20 has passed, does not even deal with the majority of countries that are looking for this relief in Africa. So it's incredibly exciting that we've been able to move forward actual debt cancellation for the 25 poorest countries, 19 of which are in Africa, for 40 countries in Africa to be able to receive a a debt standstill. But the reality is, is that we also have middle income countries in Africa that include countries with the highest extreme poverty rates across Africa who are not applicable for a debt standstill, let alone, let, let alone debt cancellation. So, so where does that leave us right now? So we have progress. We have an upcoming finance ministers meeting next week of the G20. Yesterday, there was a very important high-level ministerial meeting of 39 countries that was convened by the G20, Um, and we also head to the October uh, meetings of the IMF and World Bank. So where we're at right now um, is, is for the 73 poorest countries, we need to extend that debt standstill that's incredibly important. It needs to be extended into 2021. Beyond that, we need to actually start the process for debt sustainability and debt cancellation for those countries as well as the poorest countries so that they can ascertain where their debt levels are at if those debt levels are Um, uh, sustainable and what are the vulnerabilities and move towards a process of cancellation as both the head of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund have now called for. We know that from the high-level ministerial meeting yesterday of the G20 that G20 leaders want to look at the reality in terms of how you move forward a process of canceling debt for the countries that need it. Now beyond that, in terms of what's left out, um, Middle-income countries, which are the majority of countries in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, um, who seriously need debt relief and have serious uh, debt vulnerability issues, um, are not able to apply for any type of debt relief. They're not able to apply for what all the African finance ministers have called for in terms of a 44 to $45 billion package uh, in terms of relief. So as the World Bank has called for, uh, as Ghana's finance minister has called for, we now need to extend relief packages to the developing middle-income countries. And that's ultimately what's going to start to create some safeguards and some protections in the continent uh, of Africa. Beyond that reality, we also have to look at the other financing needs that the previous speakers, like Anna, have noted. One of the most important things that needs to move forward right now uh, is access to the global reserve funds which last were accessed after the 2008-2009 financial crisis Uh, and that's the special drawing rights it's a type of currency and aid which really costs nothing to develop to wealthy countries but could actually create a level of sustainability of debt repayments uh, as well as uh, being able to create the financing for countries across Africa, not only to provide the health care needs for their country, but to ensure that bridge financing can take place as it's taken place in Europe, um, as well as Africa. The other component of this, whether we're talking about low-income countries in Africa or middle-income countries in Africa, is that the private sector has not been a part of the party. Um, even though we've seen some of the strongest calls in history from the G20, from the wealthiest countries, from the IMF, from the World Bank, that all parts of the private sector must be involved in debt negotiations, in debt reconciliation, in debt relief. We've seen the private sector entirely avoid coming to the party. They've not accepted the invitation. They're not going to come apart, come a part of this party voluntarily. Uh, and that's a very significant issue that the G20 finance ministers must deal with next week. We can't simply invite the private sector. We must compel the private sector. Because if we don't compel the private sector with strong language as well as with strong authorities, what that leaves us with is the public sector and the taxpayers all over the world just failing the private sector out. Now, that's not to say that the private sector shouldn't you know, face uh, in the future um, some returns and significant returns as we see recoveries. Uh, but it doesn't mean that in this current moment when we're trying to get through this crisis that the private sector should be trying to exploit the crisis. So this is an important role for the G20 to take place. It's also a very important role uh, in terms of how... Uh, We move forward with the IMF and World Bank. And finally, uh, I think in terms of where our previous speakers have led us, this also dictates uh, the demand and the reality that Uh, we need to move forward uh, in the months and years to come uh, with a new type of restructuring process, a new type of debt relief process. Uh, What many of the participants uh, in this call today, many of the speakers are aware of, uh, is the incredible initiatives uh, that we've been a part of, like the heavily indebted poor countries initiative and the multilateral debt relief initiative that ultimately uh, essentially created debt relief, debt forgiveness of the two, of more than $115 billion. What did that mean for sub-Saharan Africa? It meant 54 million kids went to school who never would have seen the inside of a classroom. It meant in Tanzania, we built clinics. It meant that school fees were canceled. Later, as we had other debt relief and debt cancellation Possibilities that meant the three countries that were affected by Ebola had their debt canceled and were able to build hospitals and be able to have uh, an incredible amount of, of debt relief to put countries on a more sustainable level. So what we're really talking about now is we get beyond this current crisis and be able to prevent a future crisis, not only for Africa and the developing world, but also for the developed world, is that we need a new hippic a new MDRI, uh, a new kind of process that not only cancels debt, that looks at debt sustainability and debt vulnerability, but we need a HIPC-2 that puts a new type of debt relief and debt restructuring process in place that looks at both to the benefit of the lender and the borrower how you meet the best needs of both the borrower and the lender and their rights in terms of ensuring that if we have another crisis, we have a process in place in order to restructure debt fairly, uh, both to the rights of the borrower and the lender. And without a process like that in place, a new kind of HIPOC, a new kind of process like that, we unfortunately uh, will continue to live crisis after crisis, continue to be able to have these discussions on debt relief and debt cancellation uh, where we're not dealing with the root of the problem. And what our conversation is about today, where we need to be as an international community, is how we deal with the root of the problem. Thank you.
1: Uh, Thank you uh, very much, uh, Eric. Um, I think you've made uh, uh, a very strong plea for the uh, issue of uh, debt to be looked at in its totality, Um, short, medium, long-term issues, uh, suddenly um, to look at the broader question of um, uh, financing the SDGs as as well, uh, but more fundamentally to uh, uh, really uh, get to grips with this issue of uh, sustainability. Um, so thank you very much uh, for that. And we take note that uh, friends uh, did uh, speak your mind at the beginning and, uh, uh, and, and that was good. Um, now I turn to uh, Dr. Shelley Zehu, um, who is our next speaker. Uh, Shelly, you have the floor.
5: Thank you, David, and good day everyone uh, from all over the world. Take a breather Um, over the next 10 minutes or so. I'd like to take you away from the transatlantic view for a minute to look at this uh, African uh, debt relief efforts. China's financial presence is, uh, and as a result of that its uh, debt relief efforts in Africa is significant for the continent. And I want to illustrate this with three set of figures. One is to do with size. China currently owns uh, single-handedly about 20% of Africa's total debt and it's estimated to be around $143 billion. And of course uh, China does not officially release its debt uh, figures uh, in Africa, or it, indeed or to any other parts of the world. And so this is a rather a ballpark estimate. So 20% of Africa's total debt in the amount of $143 billion. The other is to do with time. China has had a tradition of doubling or even tripling its uh, a long commitment to Africa over the past, uh, by and large, 50 years or so, starting from 2006, under the scheme of the Forum of China-Africa Cooperation, or under the acronym FOCAC, uh, F-O-C-A-C. So it started in uh, 2006 with an, a, a commitment to Africa for $5 billion. In 2009, it's doubled to $10 billion. 2016, it's uh, tripled essentially to 60 billion. And in 2018, uh, 53 of the 54 African uh, leaders were present in Beijing. And, uh, you know, at the combination of this uh, China-Africa cooperation forum. And so China pledged yet another $60 billion in total to African countries, which was no longer a double of uh, its uh, 2015 commitment, but, we, we, we came to that natural understanding, of course, at the same time that it's impossible for China to continue this uh, doubling and tripling act of its financial commitment to Africa. And so starting from 2016 to 2018, we started to see naturally, you know, that whole, uh, you know, commitment uh, to Africa by China has uh, sort of naturally come to a plateau. And so, uh, in uh, as you can see that, uh, as we have just illustrated in the figures, uh, out of uh, the current $143 billion that China has loaned to Africa, Uh, from 2016 and the 2018, it was $60 billion each. And so 120 out of the $143 billion were uh, loans within the past five years, and they are fairly, fairly new loans. The third uh, has to do with the loan competition. And so the earlier pledges from China Uh, to Africa consists mostly of uh, interest uh, free loans, uh, or you call it zero interest loans, grants and concessional loans and uh, export credits. From the official language released by China, the overall level of concessionality and the preferentiality of China's loans to Africa is decreasing. Concessional loans uh, by and large still consists of the largest chunk of China's loans to Africa, over the past a couple of decades. And increasingly, we're starting to see a steady rise of commercial level loans, either loaned by corporates or development banks, but goes on a commercial rate. And so their uh, uh, proportion within this uh, total part of uh, China's loans to Africa has been steadily increasing. And I think it's important to highlight that there are various players behind this enormous amount of debt that we see. Uh, from China to Africa, because when it comes to debt relief discussions, it's ultimately up to the owners of the debt uh, to make those sorts of decisions. It's really not a homogenous decision that can be made uh, by China. And so uh, next, uh, China's uh, official framework for Africans' uh, debt relief uh, post-COVID-19, that been three. The first one was, uh, and as mentioned earlier, uh, a uh, China's uh, commitments along with uh, G20 member countries in the G20 initiative for the world's poorest uh, 77 countries. uh, That was made on April the 15th. And so as part of this agreement, uh, China's uh, foreign ministry has officially announced that uh, G20 countries, including China, would suspend both the interest payments and the, the debt repayments from May 1st to the end of 2020. And so China is a part of that. And the suspension is applicable to all IDA Eligible countries, so the 76 plus Angola, so 77 countries, including 40 uh, sub-Saharan African countries. The second pledge officially that China has made was a month later uh, during the virtual WHO assembly, and it was actually made by Chinese President Xi Jinping himself, and he said uh, China would provide $2 billion 19 global response and the economic relief efforts. And so it's $2 billion over two years. Both pledges one and pledges, uh, pledges one and two, uh, the G20 pledge and the WHO pledge, although uh, Africa was significantly benefited, but neither is it specifically tailor made for Africa. So the third pledge came in on June 18th. This is significant because uh, it happened during the virtual conference of the China Africa cooperation. Conference and uh, uh, President Xi again uh, pledged himself to African leaders uh, via this virtual conference that China will cancel all zero interest loan repayments due by the end of 2020. This is the first time that China is adding a specific debt relief program for Africa. And uh, and more importantly, it actually touches on not uh, no longer suspension, but actually at So this is very significant. And so um, there are some caveats uh, to when we discuss these uh, three pledges that are made by China. One is that the G20 pledge was a suspension. Uh, I think uh, David mentioned earlier, it's just uh, about uh, stopping the clock, basically. Nothing was forgiven under the G20 pledge. It's significant in terms of the delay, but really, you know, uh, in terms of the uh, debt burdens for African countries, nothing was alleviated. And so under China's uh, pledge number three, China actually canceled or promised to cancel debt. And so um, the cancellation only of course contains zero interest debt and only debt that are due before the end of 2020. And so far it's correct that there are no firm commitments uh, for any uh, debt relief programs beyond 2020. And so uh, the other caveat is that there could be some overlaps in these uh, three pledges. For example, the $2 billion uh, commitment to uh, at the WHO assembly, uh, China earlier had made a $15 million donation, I believe in three batches to the WHO, particularly after the Trump administration has announced that it was gonna uh, withdraw from the WHO membership. And so the $50 million donation that China makes to the WHO actually will be counted as a part of the $2 billion uh, total commitment. And so as you could see, these numbers do not really, it's not a uh, simple addition. So there are, there are quite a number of uh, overlaps uh, in the nuance. And so what gets the relief and what does not? According to the pledge number three, zero interest loans will be forgiven. But it said that China, first of all, doesn't announce the specific amount. So we don't really know what this number does actually, in terms of the actual size of the cancellation, actually entails. Uh, But the understanding is a portion of China's total loans to Africa today. The biggest chunk, again, is uh, concessional loans. The question remains now whether uh, concessional loans are included in any of these uh, debt relief programs to Africa. In China's uh, 2006 uh, pledge to Africa, 50% of the total was in concessional loans in 2012, again, 50%. 2015, uh, about 60% was uh, concessional loans and uh, export credits. In 2018, it was about 25%. So it's actually gone down. And that includes our grants and zero interest loans uh, in the $60 billion pledge package. And so, so far, the understanding is that the G20 pledge, would include uh, suspension of uh, interest payments on concessional loans, but China is not forgiving any uh, repayments on concessional loans at this point. And so this the biggest chunk uh, really uh, remains the biggest uh, financial concern. And uh, when it comes to commercial loans, which increasingly represent a bigger proportion uh, of course, it would be virtually impossible to forgive these debts or even talk about uh, forgiving these debts unless uh, the corporates agree to it. And so these are loans that are offered by companies and in many instances, you know, Chinese firms, uh, private companies even, and uh, they have a financial viability consideration. And so that'll take precedence. And it's not uh, as easy as saying, okay, we're going to relieve these, uh, these debts for Africa. And so uh, can China go further? China has pledged this $2 billion over the next two years as a global COVID-19 response. And I think that that is a great gesture, really, of a way of showing that China is stepping up for this global relief efforts. But when the U.S. withdrew its funding to the WHO, the narrative was that what China contributes $40 million a year to the WHO, U.S. does $500 million. So it's not fair, and so we are moving uh, out. And so when that happened, and actually when that actually happened, China could be uh, stepping up and say, you know, we're going to fill the gap, and this is a rare moment for China to say, okay, we are going to take leadership and uh, lead a major global initiative at a major global organization. But China did yet, I should say. So there is a sense that the $2 billion that China has committed would probably be the most that China realistically is willing to commit to a global COVID-19 efforts, at least as of this point. And so I think we should be realistic about a lot of these expectations as well. The other thing is that uh, China itself is uh, severely uh, impacted by COVID-19 this year. Chinese premier recently said that there are six hundred. less than 1,800 US dollars a year. And so China's per capita GDP hit $10,000 US dollars uh, as of the uh, end of 2019. And so that puts China into a very solid uh, upper middle income category. But yet, as you can see, 600 million people, roughly 40% of China's population are not in that category. And so China, you could see because of the economic uh, uh, dispersion in terms of its uh, development phase, so China is both a uh, rich country and a developing country at the same time. And so this year is the final year for China to uh, fulfill its uh, commitments uh, under the 13th five-year plan for 100% of poverty elimination. And so that is an overarching uh, economic priority, absolutely, that has to be met. And, um, Back in 2019, that whole scenario looked rather promising, but with COVID-19 unexpectedly happened And this year, I think, you know, a lot of the people the, the financial, in terms of their financial uh, uh, conditions, you know, they have been uh, uh, regressing rather than developing. And so um, China absolutely will, uh, you know, uh, take charge of these uh, domestic uh, economic uh, priorities. And I think that'll trump the domestic poverty elimination will trump many of the international efforts uh, for 2020. And the next thing is uh, that equity swap for Africa can be an option, but a very controversial option. But China's uh, increasing role as a uh, global ascending power uh, will lead China through a natural process from being the largest trading nation, which I believe uh, China hits in 2005, to the, large, the world's largest creditor nation, China, was that back in 2018, increasingly to world's largest uh, ODI originator. And I think this is just a natural curve of an ascending power. It happened to the UK, it happened to the US, it's just natural if China can continue to deliver its economic growth. Um, so China will, you know, it looks uh, possible, you know, if the debt, debt becomes uh, not viable, Uh, debt-to-equity swap could be an option, but then that'll be met with a lot of uh, global backlash, uh, talking about debt traps again. And China could offer more development finance as uh, another alternative. Uh, China did pledge in 2018, an additional $10 billion uh, in development finance to encourage Chinese companies to invest in Africa. And so these are loans uh, provided to Chinese companies to rather than to uh, you know, loans that are provided to Africa directly. And so this is uh, specifically to help Chinese companies to be financed in a way to, uh, to do equity investments in Africa. And so I think this is likely going to be the future tra- uh, through China's uh, equity investments. And um, in the virtual meeting again on June 18th uh, between Chinese and uh, African leaders, China specifically talked about helping Africa to jumpstart its uh, 5G development, digital economy, and smart cities. And I think this is an opportunity potentially for Africa to catch up with uh, global economic modernity with China's uh, technology backing. But potentially, again, this is something that the West will be Uh, very concerned about and keeping a close eye on. And uh, that relief to Africa uh, is obviously important, but China is not doing that relief, I think, purely out of altruism. And I say, uh, purely. Uh, Of course not, because uh, China has always had a a very mercantilist way of looking at the commercial relationships with the world, including with Africa. And so if African countries are not able to sustain it, it economic sovereignty, which potentially can lead to regime implosions, Uh, China could potentially lose everything in Africa. So there is no guarantee that any new regimes potentially could, uh, when they take over, you know, they would uh, recognize China's debt ownership. And so there's a lot of uh, talks about debt traps uh, all over, you know, China's uh, Road initiative. But from a Chinese perspective, it's a severe economic uh, and the financial vulnerability for China. Imagine China you know, it's, uh, talking about uh, hundreds of billions uh, that potentially could, uh, could be um, you know, completely forsaken. And so for China, it is really uh, all about at this point, I think the strategic calculus of saving Africa uh, from a severe economic calamity and the potentially regime instability, but by how much? So China does not want to go, let go of all its debt, of course not. China were to do nothing, and so China understands that it's a, it's just about finding the strategic balance of the two. And categorically, I think Africa does need more relief, and China should step up to do more. But given currently the potential um, uh, global level depression and uh, China's the domestic economic restraints, I think the debt relief programs to Africa, according to China's official language, you know, China prefers a bespoke approach, a bilateral approach. Uh, China is not likely to bow down to international pressure to do more debt reliefs. And I think it'll be ultimately up to the willingness and the negotiations on, uh, on both sides between China and African countries.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Shelley, for uh, for that. Um, I think you've essentially made uh, uh, three or four main points. Uh, firstly, that China obviously is an important player when it comes to African debt, uh, because it holds about 20% of, of African debt. Uh, the um, uh, structure of this debt uh, is... Um, uh, quite complex and includes uh, export credits, uh, conditional loans, commercial loans, uh, state, uh, other state uh, related um, uh, financing. Um, you've made clear that China is participating in the G20 uh, initiative, uh, but that um, uh, the entire picture is not clear, given the complexity of the um, uh, composition of, of the debt. And um, I think you ended by uh, making a, a plea that China can Uh, do more and should uh, should do more. So thank you for these uh, comments. Now we have about um, uh, 20 uh, minutes or so for um, uh, Q&A, and I see some questions that have already uh, uh, been posted um, uh, to Emma as well as to you, uh, Shirley. Uh, So I I guess I'll go to Emma first. And uh, this is from someone called Princess, and uh, she's she's based in the UK. She's originally from uh, Zambia. And she says uh, that uh, Ima mentioned that there are some countries that have been left behind uh, concerning debt. And so her question is what makes a country eligible to access the funding packages? Uh, Ima, that's for you.
2: Thank you, David. Um, So for the countries that have been left behind, it's mostly due to their income category, and also um, in a case where a country has poor macroeconomic fundamentals, where creditors, you know, are a bit wary of them repaying that debt back. So um, a case in point is South Africa. South Africa has you know, huge debt but because their high income country. They do not qualify for either the G20. Thank you, David.
3: I think David,
2: David's connection has gone up, so maybe Tim and Hi. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, <laughs> thank you for the response. but We've lost David, I hope he comes back again. Um, yeah, I, I noticed there's, I, there's more than 30 questions. Some of them look very penetrating and uh, I was looking at it and trying to think, uh, how would I read them out? Some of them are quite complicated. Um, Can we all see them? Can I just pounce on one of you, um, who would like to kind of respond to one of the questions that are directed at at you personally? Eric, there are actually several there that that picked up on points that you made about uh, debt cancellation. Is it all right if I pounce on you and ask you to respond uh, next to those ones? Because they seem very pertinent to this general discussion at the moment about which countries qualify and which ones don't. And I suppose I'd also like to know, I mean, maybe it's a more difficult, more, more provocative question, but but for you working for, for, for Jubilee, what has your organisation learnt about debt cancellation over the years? I mean, at one point, you know, Jubilee was pushing for quite widespread debt cancellation going back to the end of the last millennium. These have now moved. It's a much more kind of subtle approach. And I wonder whether you could just say a little bit about how things have shifted from your perspective, sort of lobbying around these really important issues. Is that, is that fair for me to ask you to do that? Just nod, that would be
3: great. It is, Tim. Uh, thank you very much. And, and I'll share a few of those points, and I think then it would be relevant for uh, Shirley and Anna and Emma to also offer some uh, further commentary. Uh, again, uh, I mean, the other panelists, the comments were really extraordinary. Uh, and I think just to take some of that debt question, who qualifies or not, uh, a little bit from um, the fine comments that that Shirley offered, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, when we look at China, actually our numbers, uh, we look at China's debt for Africa even being closer to twenty five percent, and and what does that mean, and and kind of the timeline that China's on in terms of understanding its global responsibility and global power in terms of debt, uh, there's no doubt that China uh, really has probably been the most important country to step up to the debt standstill, uh, and doing so where China is facing perhaps more significant uh, losses uh, than other G20 countries. So it's incredibly heartening to see that that level of leadership. At the same time, we also see there's a lot of pressure on China that all of China's components, from China's Development Bank, its XM, uh, you know, um, its export credit agencies, all of these institutions also are part of the debt standstill. Um, you know, as someone who is very much away from China, uh, you know, and just looking at the timeline, as someone who has looked at and worked on debt restructuring for uh, a large part of, of my life, um, where you see other G20 countries and others have some understanding of some of the debt restructuring and, and debt responsibilities, China is really a much newer actor. So it's really just kind of grappling its mind around the powers of the heavily indebted poor countries initiative. And I think as Shirley put it so well in terms of you know, how they look at a a mercantile perspective, or a, perhaps more uh, a better way to put it as a transactional uh perspective uh, with Africa and other developing countries. The reality is that's where much of the G twenty has been forever. Um, we've seen them move out of that, uh, but you know China's in a place where it's starting to and but it also makes China all the more important when we're looking at debt relief and debt cancellation as what Tim was alluding to because debt is much more complicated than it was in the 1990s or early 2000s. We are dealing, as Anna alluded to so well, much more complex levels of debt. So beyond this whole issue of public sector debt, of the G20 debt, we're dealing with a very complicated issue that Emma did such a fine job of illustrating in her graphics of private sector debt, and some of that private sector debt can only come to the table if it's compelled to. So there is a portion of private sector debt which can make choices, but there's a big part of emerging market debt, of commercial bank debt, that because of other legal responsibilities that I believe they can prove in court, they can only come to the table under a compelling situation. So to Tim's point, in terms of where we are with debt relief and debt cancellation, different from, you know, Jubilee 2000, which, again, all of us really believed in and were a part of, we're dealing with a much more complicated situation of debt, many more different types of debt, more countries that are involved, more sectors of debt. And that's where, when we talk about right now, yes, we need some immediate debt relief immediate debt standstill, and to be able to trigger real debt cancellation. But what we're talking about, the nuance now in the new moment, is what are the new structures that are needed in the financial system in order for us uh, to be able to deal with debt for the long haul, debt that's much more complicated. And that also gets to, I think, what we all believe are real rights, that investors, private creditors, governments do have rights and should have rights when they are investing responsibly and lending responsibly to developing countries, just like developing countries should have rights when they are contracting debt responsibly, when it is publicly transparent, when it is being held accountable, there needs to be a process. And so part of what we look like when we look at, when we approach a new HIPC-2 or a new kind of process is what are the processes that work In both developed and developing countries around the world and what we have almost unilaterally around the world is in our own domestic economies what ensures responsible lending and borrowing what ensures sustainability in our domestic economies is a legitimate transparent and neutrally arbitrated bankruptcy process so that type of real debt restructuring process that brings all actors private sector public sector different type of creditors to the table is totally absent from the financial system, and you know, to quote my my good friend Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, um, Adam Smith continually said, if we want a stable global financial system, we must have a global bankruptcy process. So right now, when we look forward at what we need to do, yes, we need debt relief. We need debt cancellation. We need good taxation uh, systems. We need public budget transparency. We need market and anti-corruption principles. All of these things are needed for the financial system. But if we want to prevent the next crisis moving forward, we need the kind of global bankruptcy process that Adam Smith reminded us we need for global financial stability.
0: That's actually really, really interesting. Alan Smith talked about about the hidden hand. David, are are you still hidden? Yes,
1: yes, Tim, I'm back, and uh, I do apologize. I had a power cut, Um, uh, but um, I am back, and uh, and I do have another question that's uh, in front of me um, for the whole panel. It's from uh, someone called Rayan, who is an A-level geography student. And um, uh, the question is, uh, there has been many debt relief schemes for Africa in the past. The most recent and biggest is probably the HIPIC scheme. Do you think this scheme was effective and what uh, would you change about it? Uh, I guess anyone in the panel could take this. Um, Emma, Emma, do you want to have a shot at it? Um,
2: Yes, yes, David. So with regards to the effectiveness of um, the HIPIC and MDRI scheme, Debt relief initiatives, yes, to to a large extent they were effective. So um, after 1996 and 2005, we saw that debt levels um, across the continent reduced significantly. But um, I think the bigger question is: Have these countries learned from their past experiences? And you know. Um, like, like I said earlier, we're seeing debt levels picking up again at, um, at, um, an, at an increasing pace, and um, you know we just hope we don't get to a point where we need such large-scale um, debt relief initiatives um, again.
1: Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes, uh, Shelley, please go ahead.
5: Sorry, go yeah, ahead,
1: Shelley, to add to that.
5: I just wanted to echo what Eric said uh, uh, just now for the earlier question, if that's okay, because I thought that those are important points. One is that I want to uh, re-emphasize that China is actually indeed, in terms of financial relief, stepping up uh, to become a global example, I think, in this particular effort. One is that uh, just now, I specifically mentioned China unilaterally is canceling zero interest loans to Africa that are due before the end of the year. So we're talking about potentially billions that are canceled by China this year. And on top of that, China is committing a $2 billion to the WHO. And I think all of these things matter in the sense that no other country unilaterally has actually provided a global COVID-19 specific relief funding. And so China needs to do more. But this is, I think, quite a... Uh, we should recognize the efforts there. And the other thing I want to point out is why China's debt relief out of this whole equation is so crucial. It's because when you talk about all these multilateral Branton Woods institutions, you know, IMFs or WHO, uh, sorry, WTOs, these uh, member countries, if they were to provide, say, what Eric talked about and you know, SDR, special drawing rights and so forth to Africa, so essentially China owns, every $1 out of every $5 of debt in Africa. So these loans will be used to pay China, essentially. You know, every $1, every $1 out of every $5, say for example, WHO, uh, WTO or I M F loans to Africa will essentially uh, be used to um, you know repay China's loans. And so that doesn't cut it because the other multilateral uh, members they are not going to be happy with this scenario. And so Africa is essentially stuck here. And so I think by China stepping up in this uh, single, uh, singularly, you know, China doing this uh, you know, Africa debt relief initiative, the more China uh, does in this regard, the more it is easier for the multilateral institutions to continue to finance uh, African countries in this uh, COVID-19 relief efforts.
1: Okay, thank you for that, uh, Shirley. Uh, you know, certainly, um, uh, I think your point uh, um, goes very well with also the point that uh, Emma was making, and it underscores that the uh, debt landscape has changed uh, significantly since uh, HIPIC. Uh, China's uh, participation is clearly uh, an important dimension of that, and uh, as Eric has also said, uh, and and sh- and. Uh, 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 Eric, as Eric emphasized, we do need to find sustainable uh, solutions. So thank you uh, for that. Um, I think we have, question, uh, we have time for just one last question. And um, uh, this is from Carol, who is also a student. And um, uh, she, uh, her question is as follows. She says, prominent economists such as Dr. Dambisa Moyo have, uh, have opposed aid, as postulated in her book, Dead Aid is there anything in particular which uh, differentiates the corona-induced recession in nature which leads that skeptics uh, call for aid in this time Um, perhaps uh, uh, who would like to take that um, would you know perhaps uh, we could um, uh, ask um, Anna, Anna, would you uh, like to right. come in? So I'm probably
4: this? least uh, equipped to answer the question about the economics of aid delivery. Um, so I'll try to zoom out and make three broad points that I think I see through the stream of questions. But There are basically three kinds of questions. Um, one is about, and I think it's relevant to the one that you just asked, sort of this um, a relationship between meeting the enormous financing needs and the tension between that and increasing debt vulnerabilities, right? Um, these countries need funding, um, but uh, getting the funding, particularly in debt form, um, ends up getting them into a deeper hole. And then we get into this really bizarre cycle of, uh, you know, accumulating debt and then writing it off right which we see over and over again um i think it's um very much a sign that we need to reconsider the um form of uh financing that we're providing so there were some questions about uh swaps uh you know debt for policy debt for equity i think shirley mentioned already um uh contingent instruments There is no such thing as sovereign equity um, and with good reason, but I do think that when we're lending to vulnerable countries, debt has got to be more flexible. Um, So there's got to be, and I see absolutely nothing wrong um, with having debt instruments, particularly from the official sector, that um, embed uh, standstills and relief. Tied to human rights, public health outcomes. If 1% of your population is dead, you really shouldn't be paying uh, all the, you know, making all the interest payments that uh, uh, you promised in great times. Whether it should be capitalized and what terms it should be rescheduled, et cetera, et cetera. That's why folks are paid the big box to design this stuff. Um, but I really think that it's time looking at this history of um, uh, you know, debt accumulation and write offs. And then the last point, I think, um, goes to the series of questions uh, on creditors. So uh, you know, are private creditors all that great? Why is IMF better than China? Why is China better than the IMF? I think these kinds of questions—it's sort of a—they get us into a cycle of whataboutism that we should not get dragged into. Um, the issue is how to get the good elements from all of this lending, right? And use them for the benefit of the vulnerable populations and for development purposes, um, rather than, um, you know, getting drawn into finger pointing right Um, now is an opportunity to change the regime, this is not about a few bad apples, this is about um, creating a more equitable regime for financing humanitarian, uh, you know, basic human needs and uh, development objectives. Um, so we should do that in a creative way. Um, and I'm really sorry I didn't address the uh, uh thesis. It's uh, a big one and uh, probably merits more time.
1: Thank you. Um, thanks very much uh, for that, Dana. I can assure you I'm sure that the Moyo uh, question was not a trick question. Uh, this was a student um really trying to see how aid debt and and all that uh, can um, uh, come together for um, sustainable uh, solutions and development financing. Well, I think our time is up. Um, uh, As always, uh, there's not enough time to get into uh, all the issues. But um, I think this has been a a great
3: uh, exchange of views uh, on... uh I think we lost David and Tim you're on mute. Am I on mute? Unmute. You're off Can you hear me? Yep. I'm off.
0: Can you hear me? Oh I'm just I'm just completing. I'm just coming in to say thank you everybody. I thought the the Moyo question actually was a very interesting question. We could have a whole another session on aid and, and, and debt. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the Moyo book, just while I've got the floor at the end, is of course she wrote that before the financial crisis. So would she have written quite the same book um, after the financial crisis as before it? And also very interesting, at the beginning of that book, she makes a distinction between what she calls aid in the, you know, the, the money given to governments and emergency assistance in fact she specifically says she's not writing about emergency assistance so are we in a different space here um so that suggests we need another another webinar to to discuss that but i'd like to thank everybody here today for what's been a really fantastically interesting discussion and um and i'd like to thank all the participants and and for all the audience for for listening and the really extraordinarily interesting questions, some of which I'm still thinking about and I don't know the answers to. So many thanks for everybody, many thanks for everybody. Thanks for attending,
4: bye.
3: Thanks, Tim, David, everyone, LSC, thank you.